This is Mindframe, a podcast of mind-bending science fiction. I am your host, the author and narrator of Mindframe, David Moten, and with me as always is my partner, Brent Van Tassel, who does everything magical on the other side of the microphone. Um, as a reminder, we always like to tell you that we are uh, Podbelly original, and you can go to podbelly.com to find out tutorials and information on podcasting. If you're new to podcasting, if it's something you're looking to get into, that website is a great resource for you to go to to find some some good information to start out. And it's also a great network full of really cool podcasts that you can download and listen to directly from the website. Or, of course, you can go and you can subscribe to them. As we talk about subscribing, if you like Mindframe, it would be really helpful for us if you would subscribe to our podcast. The subscriptions actually help with all kinds of crazy Google, Apple algorithms, and they help us uh, stand out more in the endless sea of podcasts. So that would always be appreciated. And as always, if you really like the show, you can support us by going to patreon.com backslash mindframe podcast, where you can uh, get various things from uh, bonus videos that we're going to start posting to the sit down episodes to uh, t-shirts and, and other goodies. So Go to patreon.com backslash mindframe podcast if you're interested in supporting us. And you can also support us if you if you like the show by going to our website and looking at merchandise. You can get t-shirts and coffee mugs and socks and all sorts of things uh, that you might want to put on your body or put your coffee in. Those are all of the, the different things that you can do to support us and find us if you do like us. If you're still listening to chapter eight, you must not hate us too bad. So I guess that's a good thing. This chapter is about Captain Claire Campana. Uh, we're revisiting her character arc. And uh, just as a brief reminder, a, a previously on mind frame, we last left Captain Campana when she had just finished her training on Earth and she has uh, had a, a quick luncheon meeting with her mother before she goes off on her new mission. And uh, after going to the space base in uh, Mojave, she met up with her commander, Commander Begay, and they ended up heading to a launch to go into space to find out what their orders are, and so she can take control of the ship that was her father's ship, the Eleanor Gray. So with that in mind, I hope you enjoy Chapter 8 of Mindframe. There she is, Captain, Ensign Shin said, indicating a bright ring of light directly ahead. It stood out from the stars, bathing in the blackness of space as a distinct O, a visual effect that Campana had assumed needed an atmosphere and refraction to accomplish. As if the ensign knew what she was thinking, he added, That halo effect of light is her coronal wake. Her shields never fully go down, so at this low level of power, they still do funny things with light waves, but they let larger objects with mass and inertia pass through them. We'll be on her in just a minute. The ensign flying the launch boat had let Captain Campana visit the cockpit. She didn't have official naval clearance to visit a launch's helm, but the ensign wasn't going to say no to the new captain of Eleanor Gray. Plus, none of the systems in the launch were past the human technology threshold, except for a shield it used for re-entry that somehow rerouted and stored heat as a fuel for future flights. The rest of the simple ship was free from messenger technology. The bright halo they tacked toward went from a pinprick of illumination to the brightness of a full moon in a matter of minutes as they approached it. At the center of the ring of light was a long ship, a great gray pickle. It was not flattering, not sleek or futuristic in its design. The alien minds that dreamed this thing up obviously knew nothing of human aesthetics. As Captain Campana crept closer to the Clinton, she went from being unimpressed to disturbed by the pickle shape, 
as she fully noted the lines of the thing. It was a different shape now than it was a minute ago, fluid in its lines, morphing. She knew it shifted, its walls would move, but she didn't think the effect would be visible from such a great distance. The hole moves that much, she asked, holding the back of Shin's seat so she didn't float away. She had Velcro on her boot covers, but preferred to free float instead of trying to walk with those things on. Affirmative, kinda creepy. Wouldn't feel safe standing inside of something that isn't made of solid matter myself. She replied, We don't know for sure if it's solid matter or not, Ensign. In fact, we don't have a clue what that ship is made of. That is true. We just know she kicks ass, Captain. Affirmative, Campana echoed in a bit of awe. You may want to go back and strap in, ma'am. We'll be docking in a jiff. About to start doing some burns, Ensign Shin said in a perfect standard accent. He was Chinese, so his standard was better than most. Campana noticed how his knees folded in the seat. Shin must be at the upper threshold of height requirements for a launch vessel. He talked into his comm unit, announcing, This is the OLV Zona Rio asking permission to approach the airspace of ONV Clinton. We will be at your coronal threshold in 60 seconds, over. He slipped into pilot speak, discussing vectors and landing clearance with the Clinton. If Campana believed in such thing as fate or good luck or omens, she'd have been superstitiously pleased that the launch was named after the Tijuana neighborhood called Zona Rio. Though she was raised in the rebuilt post-war sections of San Diego, Tijuana was her birth town. She was proud of Tijuana. It was the jewel of the West Coast, a bustling seaport infused with purpose and skyscrapers and military bases built back when China took it as a forward operating base in WVW, after they raised San Diego to the ground. Campana left the cockpit and slid into the passenger section of the launch. She pushed herself along using the seat backs, slowing herself as she neared Commander Begay, and expertly rotated down and strapped in. Zero-G training was a thing of muscle memory now. Campana wished she could have told an 18-year-old version of herself back in the academy days, prone to throwing up in no-gravity training tubes, that she would one day come to this level of zero-G familiarity. How's it going up there? Did we fall out of the sky yet? Begay asked from his seat, sliding his tabula into his breast pocket where it would charge. All is clear. We're within visual of the Clinton. She in pickle mode? Captain Campana was surprised that someone else thought the Clinton was ugly as well. Everyone seemed to see the ship through the lens of technology and therefore thought she was the most beautiful creation ever hewn by hand of man and mind of messenger. Commander Begay spent the last several months training on board the Clinton while Campana was completing command and framer training down on Earth. Both were waiting for Eleanor Gray to be repaired. Of the unsightly Clinton, Campana admitted, I thought it was just me. Begay laughed in three loud, wide-toothed quacks, saying, She can be beautiful at times, but when she's taking launches and loading up on supplies, she spreads out like a metal condiment. Well, not metal, but whatever. Metal-looking, anyway. She goes more rigid in flight mode. And in battle stations, she's like a wedge of hard death. It isn't computation that makes the hull and halls move. It's some sort of quantum uncertainty thing, Heisenberg or Kennard or whoever. The walls know they're being perceived, and they react to sheer perception. They move because the viewer believes they need to be moved. The walls even have their own framer. Hell of a thing, Captain Campana said. She is that, Captain. Campana pushed herself through the airlock of Zona Rio and into the clear membrane that connected the two vessels. A big yellow triangle was posted near the outer airlock for the Clinton. In bold black digital sign, it read 1G, 
Good to know. Full gravity. As the airlock door to the Clinton slithered away in a wave of metal-like liquid substance, Campana grabbed the upper handle and prepared herself for a full G. An ensign was there to assist, but she waved his help away and landed adeptly on her feet, remembering how oppressive a full G could be right out of zero. Begay pulled in behind her, also refusing to get help, but staggering a bit on the landing. The air in the ship was cool and crisp, unlike the tyrannical air of the Mojave Desert. Begay took the lead and stood on the scan grid so the system could take stock of who just came on board and every single thing he carried with him. Campana was next as the blue light washed over her in pulses. She could feel her hair stand up a bit with each pulse, five in total. A pleasant ping emanated from her uniform's collar, telling her she was cleared aboard. She crossed a bulkhead and entered the gangway of the Clinton. The deck was a series of metal gratings, actual metal, stuff from Earth. The decking plates rested on little support beams that folded inside of the substrate down beneath. The subdeck, bulkheads, and overhead of the Clinton looked like the surface of a cave, something that was carved by echops of time. It was like a gray metallic glass with striations of minerals or some sort of deposits running through them. There were pores and holes here and there, one of which provided a breeze as Campano walked past. The walls didn't seem to move visually while she looked at them, but it did feel distinctly like they were watching her, like they knew when they needed to move. A man approached up the hall and stopped in front of Campana to salute. He wore the pips of a full commander and snapped to the rigorous epitome of a naval salute, saying, Captain Campana, sir, I am Commander Wen. Commander, she said, saluting back. Lieutenant Begay saluted Wen to round out the formalities. Campana saw that he wore the Chief of Fleet badge under his nameplate, an insignia that gave him more power than an individual ship's captain in many ways. He was the hand of the Commodore, seeing that the fleet was in alignment with the Commodore's wishes. The burdens of the job were much heavier than the badge itself, Kampana knew. She was Nachayev's chief of fleet when he was still only an admiral in charge of the Sixth Fleet. That was before the attack, before both of them were injured and promoted, before her father's death. Welcome aboard, the chief of fleet announced. The Commodore has a few minutes just now as your launch unloads. He requests your company, Captain. Commander Begay will be shown his quarters. Lead the way, Campana said, eager to see an old family friend, regardless of his ridiculous new rank and bizarre new flagship. Campana sat in the ready room, a chamber that was set aside to make battle plans and debrief senior staff. Now it sat empty, only Campana, the long table, and an unimpeded view into space. It was odd, scary, she would admit, to have the most hostile environment she could imagine peering at her through an unshielded hole in the hull. There was something there between her and a cold, ruthless vacuum, but she couldn't say what it was. Not glass, not metal, not even solid matter, maybe. Some law of physics humans were centuries away from manipulating, the plans beamed down from strange, distant intelligences. Windows that weren't windows, walls that weren't walls. Campana's peripheral vision caught a blur, a motion, a changing. She turned her head to identify it, but came to find nothing was just the walls, which weren't walls. The morphous, gray, melted mineral, the non-Euclidean, chaotic walls. There were no square corners on this ship, save in furniture or a picture frame or something brought aboard by a human being. Campana swiveled in her chair, turning away from the window, and stared at the wall, trying to gauge its distance from her. Not an easy feat with no straight lines for her mammal brain to use for a perspective. The wall could have been five feet from her, 
or ten. She could have touched it or it was well out of reach. She wanted to touch the wall, and she reached out, her back to the conference table. And she did. The wall was there, barely, for her fingertip to tease. She pulled her hand away quickly from the feel of it, hard but giving, like a metal dermis. Campana stood suddenly and sprung forward, enough of a leap to run her face into the wall based on where she'd just touched it. But the wall wasn't there to be run into. It was back more. She reached out, and her finger could still barely touch it, though now she was several feet closer in that direction. The wall was moving. The pickle was changing its shape. The walls, as Begay had suggested earlier, were watching her. Somehow she knew what she wanted of them, and they changed to accommodate her will. They were Heisenberg's theories in the flesh, a thing changing its state because of perception. How the hell did they build this thing? What was the material? How was it aware without any central formal form of computation? More questions to ask when the lariat finally ripped a hole in space. Campana thought about the sign posted near the living quarters on the Clinton when they showed Begaya's quarters moments ago. It read, If you don't need the space, don't use the space. It was a ship rule. If this room only needed to be a couple of feet wider than the conference table, the room would contract, give the space to some other area that needed a few extra feet or inches. She reached out again, wanting desperately for the walls to be farther away so she had more air to breathe. And her finger fell short of the wall. It was several feet back now. The room was bigger, based purely on a moment of claustrophobia. A gentle ping sounded from Campana's collar, indicating someone was coming into the room. There were only membranes, not doors, so someone could sneak up on you in a private moment, if not for the announcements. Campana spun, saw it was the Commodore, and snapped to attention, palm held horizontal, saluting over her heart as naval tradition dictated. Commodore Nachayev saluted back. He looked good. She was worried that the wounds would have taken their toll, made him less of a presence, reduced his authoritative footprint, but no. He owned the room still and always. This was his ship. This was his fleet. This was his theater of war. Commodore Nachayev, Kampana said. Commodore Hell, he said, saluting back and then hugging her tightly. Unlike most high-ranking naval officials, he had a thick Russian accent. He still clearly spoke his native tongue in addition to standard, a practice frowned upon in most areas of the world, but apparently not in the parts that used to be called the nation of Russia. Benjamin, she exhaled, using his first name. Lost in his arms, as if they were her father's arms. The hug conveyed entire hours of conversation, as only long hugs could do. It spoke first of having been absent each other's company, then moved to being glad each other had survived their battle, and ending with the mourning of Campana's father, the Commodore's best friend. Nachayev didn't develop wrinkles as he aged. Instead, his features became more pronounced. His latter years weren't a diminishing of who he was, but a grand culmination. Decades of war and command and authority and sacrifice made him bolder and stronger. He had the look of a modern Russian. His face was thin, features narrow. He had evolved for cunning, strategy, and predation, not brute force. He was the old scythe, not the hammer. His lips looked like they existed the purse, not kiss. But he did kiss the captain, a quick peck on her forehead as they ended their hug. How is Maria? he asked of Campana's mother. She's fine. Her new leg works better than mine. What will they beam down next, eh? I've asked that all morning walking around the Clinton. 
She is a next-stage miracle, is she not? Venyamin Nachayev said as he walked to the Commodore's chair at the end of the conference table. A small series of drawers were at his knee, and he slid one open, produced a decanter and two rock glasses, and poured some wine, a red as dark as the heart of space, into the glasses. He handed one to her, and she noticed that etched in the glass was his name in Cyrillic script. It was against naval codes not to use standard at all times, but the five Commodores who ran the Navy for WorldGov must be given exceptions. Or the Russian side of Nechayev was merely being prideful. Venyamin raised his glass, stood to attention, and called a toast in Russian. Kampana laughed and rolled her eyes. His toast, he told her years ago, meant to lovely women. She replied instead with another toast that meant to your health in Russian. Maybe she had them backwards. They were one of the few times she'd heard a language other than standard or Spanish in her entire life. She took a swallow of wine. It tasted of vinegar and wood, like most naval wine, but it felt good going down. Campana was surprised that even as a Commodore, he didn't abuse his station to get a better wine from a fifth house. He was WorldGov through and through, chit for chit. Won't they fine us for not speaking standard, she asked. They can cast me off in irons to the deepest dungeon if they won't let me salute a beautiful naval officer in my mother tongue. There is only one mother, and we all speak her tongue, Campana replied in a false bravado, echoing WorldGov propaganda from her childhood. Posters hung in all the schools, promoting the universal adoption of the standard language, also called common and basic, depending on the level of formality you adopted. She spoke Spanish so seldom now that certain phrases were hard to recall. Her dreams were only in standard, the language of the stars. It was remarkable to think she already spoke the language of the Kel and of dozens of sentient species throughout the cosmos. The Commodore indicated they should sit. Campana took a chair with her back to the disconcerting wall and had a view of outer space again, Luna hanging large and patient. Did you ready a speech? Venyamin asked, after staring at the moon a bit himself. Sir? A speech. History loves a speech, and all eyes will be watching you as you pilot Eleanor Gray fresh out of dry dock. Citizens will want to see her launch and hear her new captain say some words. The deviants, too. They tried to burn her. They failed. Our victory needs to be rubbed in their faces a little. They didn't attack her for a strategic victory, but a symbolic one. The terrorists that they are. I don't have to remind you that we denied them that victory with the arrival of the Sixth Fleet. But the Grey means something to both sides, and you are her mouthpiece. A speech is the thing. I'm not much for speeches, I have to admit, but I'll start working on something now that you mention it. Bah, the Russian replied with a dismissive glance. He poured them each another swig of wine. I've got a great speech man. He manages to make me sound like something other than an old warhorse. Or an old warhorse's ass, anyway, so I'm sure he can add a modicum of literary panache to you as well. He can work with you on something between now and Akunga. Ensign DeVille. He was in journalism before he was upvoted to be a speechwriter. I would appreciate that, sir, very much. Any news from the front? We are no longer classifying it a front. It is merely an incursion point. We want to paint the deviants as pirates, not a world-class navy. But yes, a victory out in the belt. Decisive. One battle and the deviant presence out there was broken. A single battle? We were prepared for it to last for weeks. Yes, Naval Theater of Operations Echo lured the deviants to an especially dense area of ice 
which they impregnated with a flat plane of mines. The mines detonated, small, undetectable things that wouldn't have even dented a hull. However, they destroyed the asteroids, making the ice and rock an area of hazard that nobody could fly through. This gave the battle space a floor, and it made traditional three-dimensional space combat obsolete. Then, using techniques not seen since World War II, World Navy won the day. Tactics shifted tremendously once you could only stay on a plane level with the enemy or fly the equivalent of above it. There was no way to go a relative below since that was the hazard. They couldn't anticipate how to fight with one side of the cube cut off. It seemed too obvious to work, but Admiral Oshiro saw it through. It was a mix of fine piloting, expert tactics, and the typical perfection from NTO Echo's framer. That young man is one of the best humanity has to offer. The Admiralty didn't think it would work, but they relied on old Soviet tactics from the Baltic Sea Campaign, actually. We're still not sure where that means the battle lines will shift to for the next incursion point. The Deviants are on the retreat. Because of the victory in the belt and the data gathered by your father, we were able to gather some critical intelligence. In fact, your mission is much more than you were led to believe while you were undergoing training back on Earth. What do you know about the Deviants as they exist out here in space? Nachayev asked. Kampana said, They are the unhappy minority who think WorldGov is an evil police state or something. In my training, they said that roughly 3% of the entire human population works in labor camps and are in prison or generally unhappy with the system. That is a wildly lesser number of a lower class than ever in the history of humanity. 97% of the human race is healthy and happy, engaged in meaningful pursuits. The other small percent steals tech, sabotages ships, assembles fleets out of older ships and attacks mining colonies, cargo haulers, petty piracy, terrorist bombings, that sort of thing. Very good. You've just said chapter and verse what command wants you to say. But this is not the case. My predecessor, Commodore Sui, suspected that there is a shipyard where the deviants built their vessels. He theorized that they don't merely fly junkers that nobody wants. But the other four Commodores laughed his theory out of the Naval Grand Chamber. However, we confirm this to be true at the battle for the Eleanor Gray. The Deviants fly a new class of ships. Nachayev paused. She couldn't place the expression on his face. It was as intense as the look he had when he reported to her that her father had died in battle. This means the Deviants have a messenger. Campana felt the walls of the room shift. Her stomach rolled on itself, and only grew steady for the moment when she doubted what she thought the Commodore had just said. Excuse me, sir, did you? A messenger. Yes, they have a messenger. So we had weak intelligence of the new ship's varieties that we hadn't seen yet, but he refused to share the evidence because it was all circumstantial. Then he died. But we witnessed a new class of ship and a new particle weapon unknown to any of our divisions. Why didn't we hear of this? Hell, why didn't we see it during the battle for the Grey if that's what killed my father? We were right there, Venyamin. We were scanning. My framer, Nachayev said. She kept the true details of the scans from reaching anybody's screens but mine. I had given her orders, as much as one can give a framer orders, to keep such discoveries private to me if she ever noted a new ship. I have the scans. I have the proof. It was part of what got me upvoted to Commodore, I suspect. And then... When I presented the findings while you were still training eight months ago, our Alpha Messenger confirmed this at a WorldGov conclave. 
Apparently, he spoke to the Deviant's Alpha Messenger in some sort of hypnagogic dreaming state that they enter. Our Alpha Messenger spoke to theirs? You're saying they have an Alpha. Does that imply a Beta and so forth down the line? The Commodore nodded as if to say it was a good question. We don't know for sure. They have one, and he or she has been designated their Alpha, sticking with identical nomenclature to our own. Campana had too many questions. Her head felt like she drank far more than two gulps of naval wine. Who all knows about this? What types of ships do they have? What other technologies will have been beamed to the Deviants? Who is this Deviant Alpha getting messages from? Obviously, it isn't the Cal Democratia. Correct. Many good questions, Claire. We aren't certain who, but the Deviants are attacking us based upon some other alien agenda. A third party, eager to be the ones that see the Lariat close in their favor. Anything more than that, we don't know. However, our Alpha does. When he visits you on Eleanor Gray to anchor you to your framer, the captain interrupted. Sorry, sir. The Alpha is coming to my ship? I thought only Gamma and Below did anchoring. Yes, for the vast majority. But for you, and this is eyes only, Claire, the framer on the Eleanor Gray is the strongest of the species. She is on a very short list of potentials to be upvoted the next time a messenger needs to be replaced. A mind that powerful means the Alpha comes to anchor you, and you will be following his orders. He will use your ship as his command vessel and try to find out more about the location of the Deviant shipyard, possibly even turn over the Deviant messenger. Will his fleet be with us? I have no training to be captain of a ship and chief of fleet simultaneously. Of that, I am not certain. All I know is that Alpha and his attendants will join the crew. He was explicit in wanting Eleanor Gray as his personal vessel for this mission. What becomes of his private fleet is beyond me. Logic would have it that they stay with you and act as protection, but lowly framers don't abide by logic, so I'm certain a messenger has no need of it either. Remember, he is a full member of the WorldGov Conclave, one of the 20 most powerful living human beings. As are you, Campana said, saluting her old friend with a glass of wine. They both drank to that. So I am. But remember, Alpha is not Navy. He's only barely human, if you ask me. The messengers are a strange lot. Spooky. And he is stranger than the rest of them. At times, even insane. But you will follow all of his orders and directives, no matter how odd or contrary to what you are comfortable with. Yes, sir. Commodore Nechayev tinkered on the skin of his wrist, and when he swiped an emotion that meant he was transferring something, Campana's collar chimed in her ear. File received. She pulled out a tabula and saw a file there. On it was the stylized capital letter A with a dot in the middle that WorldGov used as shorthand for the Alpha. That file is directly from Alpha's desk. It has all of your orders. Though I am delivering them, they do not come from me or the Navy. This is his mission. And this is, of course, very sensitive information. You are now the ninth living person in the entire human race to know this intelligence about the Deviants. It can't be shared with your crew or anyone, except for your framer if you decide it to be pertinent. We've got about... The Commodore paused to check a pocket watch, an archaic nicety since the time could have been displayed on the skin in the exact same place. Nine more hours before we fire the drives and leave Earth space. The last of the resupply runs are coming up on launches, and the last of the crew and passengers are already boarded. Most of your people are on Deck 9. 
I could get them assembled if you wanted a few words with your crew. Campana had a million questions about the mission, the Deviants, Alpha, a new class of ship, how it killed her father, why no one else in the Navy was informed of this threat, any number of things. But Benjamin had just transitioned. He changed the topic. She served directly under him long enough to know that this meant there was no changing it back. It was closed. All information she would get would come from that file from Alpha's desk. So she rolled with the transition, saying, No, thank you. I'd rather make a grand entrance and speak to my crew first on the Eleanor Gray. It'll be all about that speechwriter you mentioned. As for my ship, I haven't gotten regular updates while I was undergoing training. How's she coming along? The Gray is almost ready. She'll be space-worthy within the month. That soon, Campana asked. Yes, we've been having slight problems with the Kunga Station's framer communicating with the other framers at the dry dock. Interference from some massive solar storms that somehow mess with their abilities. The Grey, however, is small enough to be docked inside the shielding of the station, so her repairs are moving much more rapidly than we'd have anticipated. When a Kunga cannot focus on other vessels, it focuses on Eleanor Grey. This is all normal, just a bit more solar activity than usual. The Commodore finished his wine and, staring at the glass, said, I wish your father could be here to see you take over as captain of the Eleanor Gray. If my father were here, there wouldn't be a job opening for me to fill. I know, Nachayev gently laughed. I'm just saying he'd be proud. I'm proud. I'm glad it's you taking his spot. Billy Campana was a legend to our Navy and our citizens. But you... You're our legacy. He was the best of us back when we needed it most. You'll be the best of us when the lariat finally closes. He pointed a steady, unwavering finger directly at her face. All eyes are watching you, Claire. The entirety of the human race. And others. The Commodore stood and set his glass on the tray from where he first took it. Captain Campana finished her wine in one gulp. It did nothing to settle her stomach, which was shifting and changing shape just like the walls of the Clinton. She stood and straightened her uniform. The room suddenly felt overpressurized, and she checked the readout on her wrist. The freckles read a typical air pressure. The Commodore stood and saluted her goodbye. The Deviants had an alpha messenger, maybe more than one. They killed her father with a new ship, a new weapon, and all of this meant they were a real threat, not the junkyard dogs they were made out to be. She would have to command a ship, be responsible for the actual lives under her. Her previous path on the World Navy was all about logistics and tactics. Now the sailors were no longer abstractions. They were people, real human beings she'd meet in the commissary and pass in the passageways, not data surrounding a fleet or merely statistical casualties. They would live and die by her command. Campana would lead them. She would meet the Alpha, their Alpha, they would go on a secret mission led by the Earth's most powerful mind. All eyes, friendly, hostile, indifferent, deviant, human, and alien, would be watching her. Thank you for listening to Chapter 8. As always, you can find uh, my other book, 181 Pine, by going to mindframepodcast.com. And you can also find uh, the, the novels and short story collection of Zach Smith, who is the host of our sit-down episodes on our website as well. You can find us on various social media. On Facebook, we are Mindframe Podcast. On Instagram, we are The Mindframe Podcast. On Twitter, we are The Mindframe Pod. 
and on Reddit, we are r slash podcast. We are, of course, a member of the Podbelly Podcast Network, where you can listen to other amazing uh, podcasts that are produced and uh, put out through there. Uh, one of them is Hillbilly Horror Stories, uh, which you should check out if you like uh, hillbillies, uh, horror, and stories. And another one is uh, The Madman's Notes, which is another fictional podcast that you can find on there and is is worthy of checking out. So we hope that you're still enjoying uh, Mindframe. And as always, the Lariat is closing.